All right, our memory verse this month, uh, we haven't done it in a couple of weeks, but there's still blanks out of the way, or blanks up there, so let's work on it. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will find it. Mark eight thirty four and 35. Yeah, a little, little, little hiccup there at the end. We'll, we'll fix that for, for next week. And if you said along with me, we'll find it. At the end, you were wrong. It's we'll save it. I heard, I heard the correct one over here. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, oopsie. So I checked my cheat sheet, and y'all are right. All right, so where are we in Mark? Um, we, we, we skipped. We've missed two weeks of, of progression. So the, the last message that, uh, that we had from Mark was way back in chapter 6. The feeding of the 5,000, a lot of stuff has gone on in his gospel since then. Again, we don't know if it was chronological, but this is the order he put it in, so this is the order he wants us to take it. Uh, So along the way, Peter has confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're right, and this wasn't from you, this is the Holy Spirit, but don't tell anybody. We're still in that, don't tell them that part of it. Everybody knew he was doing miracles. Everybody knew he was uh, uh, teaching and, and, and what he was saying, but it was the Messiah part. Don't tell people that part because that's just going to stir up more problems. You know, some obeyed, some not so much. We've also missed, or, or what has happened, is he has pr- made his first prediction, in Mark anyway, his first prediction of his death and resurrection. He's told them about it, they don't get it. They actually ask the question, what does he mean uh, by that? that they're going to say that in a few minutes. Uh, the, the Mount of Transfiguration has happened, and that is immediately prior to where we are this morning. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain uh, and up there he was transfigured, and he stood there and talked with Moses and Elijah, and, and they saw him not in all his glory, they couldn't have handled that, but they saw him gloriously changed. They saw him a lot closer to what he should have been as the second person of the Trinity than what they have seen in his incarnate state. So they're looking at that, they're blown away, they have no idea what to say at this point. They don't really know what's going on, but Peter has never let not knowing what to say stop him from saying something. So he said, well, let's build houses for you. You know, let's build shelters. This is great. Let's stay up here a while. You know, let's hang out here. Well, we all know the mountaintop is not where we get to hang out. The work is done in the valleys and the bottom of the mountain. They, he, he says on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, he says to them that, uh, let me find where, I, did I mark it? I didn't. They asked about the scribes, why do they say this, and uh, all these things, and he tells them, um, well, I've completely lost it. He, he tells them that he's going to die again, but they say they, they don't understand. Scripture tells us they didn't under. Oh, it's verse 10. They kept this word to himself, themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. I don't know which part of, of which of those four words they couldn't understand, but they're struggling. What does he mean, rise from the dead? Because if he's going to rise from the dead, he's gotta die or something but that's not right what's he they're just they're just confused and then they ask about scribes why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first he explains that to them that that he did come first he doesn't say it explicitly uh but uh John the Baptist is who he's referring to and then next passage we deal with scribes so he has prepared uh, the disciples for, and, and us, for what is coming. This passage, our big idea this morning, is whatever it is you think can't be done, 
Jesus can. The title of the message, Jesus can. You're going to hear that a lot this morning. And if you're paying attention, if you're doing things the right way, you're going to say it a lot as well. Mark 9, 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they being Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. When He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe! Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house with his disciple, after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, "Why couldn't we drive him drive it out?" And he told them, "This kind can come out by nothing but prayer." Whatever it is you think can't be done, Jesus can. We see a number of places in this passage where a question is either directly asked or implied by the actions of the people around Jesus. And we're going to answer, we're going to ask, and we're going to answer those questions this morning. The first question we come across is who can carry the glory of God? Now, Jesus has just come off of the Mount of Transfigurations, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, and as he comes down the mountain, he comes into whatever town he's in at this point, he comes and the people see these four fellows coming. Now, they were not in the least excited to see Peter, James, and John. Have you seen the videos online of the, the, the toddler when grandma and granddad come up the driveway and they get out of the car and they're coming up to the house and the toddler runs down the sidewalk toward grandma and grandma squats to hug the toddler and that football move like a, ju- a juke right there boom, around grandma straight to grandpa. Well, that's kind of what the crowd does to the disciples. You, you might have thought that, you, you might think the disciples were, ooh, they're excited to see us. And suddenly they're looking past Peter, James, and John to Jesus. They're excited to see Jesus, not Peter, James, and John. Possibly Jesus still had a glowy look, kind of like Moses did when he came down from Mount Sinai. We don't know that. None of the disciples or none of the, uh, the gospel writers tell us that he did. It's possible, but it's not guaranteed. Even if he didn't, though, even if that wasn't what he looked like, he still carried the glory of God. The people knew who he was. 
The people knew who this guy, they recognized him at this point. They had seen the healings. They had been walking around and seeing what he had done to people. They had heard him preach sermons that they, like they had never heard before. They had heard him teach in ways that would befuddle the learned men of the time. Nobody could teach like him, they would say. They had seen and heard about how he calmed storms and, 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 and made food appear and all these miracles with nature. They knew who this guy was who can carry the glory of God the disciples didn't have that and the crowd knew it the crowd knew they weren't like him Jesus was different you see Jesus was God though they didn't know to put those words to it they just knew he was different from Everybody else they had ever known, every teacher that had come through, every miracle worker, everyone that could exercise demons. No, this guy is different. They knew it. Who can carry the glory of God? Jesus can. Only Jesus can. Change it, Pat. There we go. Jesus can. Number two, who can meet our deepest need? Verses 16 through 18. The father comes to Jesus. He says, Why aren't, who are y'all arguing with? What's, what's this argument about? When Jesus asks questions, you know, we wonder, I wonder, okay. Did he really not know? Or did he know and he was just asking to get the answer? We don't know. There are things that the incarnate human part of Jesus did not know. God told him in his humanity what he needed to know when he needed to know it. He was completely dependent on the Father in his incarnate nature. He was not not divine. He never wasn't divine, but as we have said before, he set aside the free use of his divine attributes while he was the incarnate son. So he depended on God. At this point, did he know or did he not know? didn't matter, but he asks the question, why are you arguing? Before the scribes could answer or the disciples could answer, the father speaks up. Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. The father didn't wait for the scribes or the disciples to, to uh, explain. How many of you know that when you've got an issue in your life, when you need something from Jesus, the arguments going on in church don't really matter. It's what you have in your life that you need a touch from Jesus about. That is what matters. This guy was not concerned about the scribes' arguments or the disciples' arguments. He was concerned about his son. That he had come or that he had brought to Jesus. His child suffers from demonic epilepsy. The description here is epileptic, is, is, is the, uh, are the uh, symptoms, thank you, of epilepsy. But we are told clearly it's a demon. The demon is causing these things, also causes him, causes him to be both mute and deaf. And the father has probably gone to all the guys that could say, that would say that they could do exorcisms. There were plenty in this time that went around doing stuff like that. We learn about the seven sons of Siva in, uh, in Acts. That's what they did. They cast out demons, so they said. They, he'd been to everybody. He'd gone to the, the teachers, probably gone to the scribes. Now he's come to the disciples. The disciples couldn't do it. And finally, he sees Jesus, but he tells them, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't. Now, if we just go back a few chapters, uh, it's either the beginning of chapter 6 or the end of chapter 5. You'll find, yeah, beginning of chapter 6. He sends them out. When we get to the beginning of the, chapter of, of the feeding of the 5,000, they come back and say, you remember? We were doing it. We, we preached and we taught and, and we healed and we cast out demons. We did it, Jesus. 
They had cast out demons before. They have healed people before. But at this point, at this time, they could not. Why couldn't they? Well, Jesus is going to tell them why. He's going to tell the man it's by faith. He's going to tell his disciples it's by prayer, which, you know what? Two sides of the same coin. We pray in faith. We have faith, so we pray. They couldn't do it this time. Did they, had they gotten to where they were so proud of themselves, so self-sufficient? Well, it worked last time. It'll work this time. We'll cast them out. Did they, did they think that they were the ones with the power to do it? Oh, we're disciples of Jesus, by the way. We can cast out demons. As if they do it without him somehow, just because they carry the name, just because they carry the name of the church of Jesus, suddenly whatever they do is fine? Uh, no. No. Humans will let you down. That's what the Father knew. Humans will let you down. It, it, the, the thing that you long for most, the, the, that emotion or comfort or healing that you think you need cannot be found in any other person, not in a spouse, not in a friend, not in a child, not in a family member. If you are looking for satisfaction, if you are looking for wholeness, if you are looking for completion, if you're looking for healing, you are not going to find it in another person. That person will let you down, not every time, but eventually. And it doesn't matter what they've done for you in the past. But they met that need that one time. Well, this is a different need. The disciples were able to cast out the demons that, those times. But this is a different thing. So you've got to ask the question. Who can meet our deepest needs? Jesus can. Who can throw hell into a panic? When Jesus walks up, when Jesus comes up to the man, he replies to everybody, crowd, disciples, dad, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Where are you going to take your need? Where else can you? Bring it to Jesus. He's told you, how long are you going to look in other places for what only I can offer? How long, church, are you going to think you're the end-all, be-all of the faith when you're supposed to be pointing to Jesus? How long, unbelieving generation, bring him to me? So they brought the boy to him. When the Spirit saw him, when the demon saw him, it threw him down. Lost my verse. It immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Earlier, we've only had a description of what happens to the boy. When the demon sees Jesus... We get a visual representation. The demon wasn't scared. It did not respond to the scribes or the disciples. The father comes to the disciples and says, this is what happens when the demon gets him. And the disciples try to cast him out. Nothing. Doesn't leave, but apparently doesn't do anything either. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And when the demon sees him... He gets, gets after it. I'm reminded, I mentioned them earlier, the seven sons of Siva in Acts 19. The demon that, that was in this man that these seven sons of Siva were attempting to cast out. And his response to those guys, those, those traveling uh, exercisers, was, Jesus I know Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? I, I swear it's one of the best, 
verses in the Bible for our idea that we are something special. Jesus, I know. Paul, yep, I've heard of him. He does this sometimes. I got no clue who you fellows are. Not concerned about you in the least. This is not that situation. When the demon sees Jesus, it it knows. This is over. Now, this is a mute spirit. And remember that for the next verse. It's a mute spirit. So it didn't confront Jesus with words as other demons have. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Some of them asked. What are you going to do with me, son of God? Some of them asked. Nope, no, this one, he doesn't respond vocally. He only responds, it only responds physically with actions. It knew what was coming because it knew who stood before it. This is not, this ain't Paul. Paul's not a thing yet as far as Scripture is concerned. It's not those disciples that claim to be able to do it and, but not acting on Jesus' power. It's not those scribes. They got nothing on me. This is one who can do something. So it throws him down into convulsions. Makes him rigid, foaming at the mouth. That attack on you because you are taking something to Jesus, because you are choosing to follow Jesus, that temptation that hits harder now that you've asked for the strength to give it up, that answer that seems harder to hear from God the longer you've prayed for clarity in that situation, that's hell attacking when it sees Jesus. They're going, he, Satan, the demons, they're going to make it harder to move beyond where you are to where you need to be with Jesus. Guaranteed. Every time. New believer, you thought it was tough before you were saved and and you struggled in the weeks, months, years afterward. It's only going to get worse. The devil is not going to let you go easily. And it's going to do everything it can to keep you. It is going to attack you when Jesus shows up. Because it knows the end is near. Who can throw hell into a panic? Jesus can. Verses 21 through 23. Who can do what seems impossible? The dad knows, okay, this is a different situation now. Jesus asked the question in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, He is talking to the man he clearly knows has done all the things. All the exorcisms, all the miracles, all the preaching and teaching, all the, all the, 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 the calm seas and the extra fish and bread, and all the things. And he says, in this moment, because of where he is, because of what he's experienced so far, he says to the Savior of the world, if you can do anything... Would you? See, the inability of the disciples has diminished the man's faith in Jesus. He came knowing Jesus could do it. Then he talked to Jesus' people, and now he's not so sure anymore that Jesus is everything he thought he was. Come on, church. People come to church to talk to Jesus' people and they realize, wait a minute. Those people I talk to, they don't sound a lot like the Jesus I thought I had read about and heard about and been taught about. And so their faith is diminished. Let that be a lesson to you, to me, believer, What you do or don't do affects how people 
see Jesus. What you say, how you say it, who and what you support, where you go, what you buy, your attitude, your responses, your everything affects how people see Jesus. Why? Because you claim to be His. You're here on Sunday morning because you're a part of His family. And the world looks and says, yeah, I've heard about Jesus and I've heard some great things about Him, but I look at the people who claim to follow Him and I'm just not seeing that. What you claim affects how people see Jesus. Don't oversell yourself. It sounds like the, demon, uh, the, the disciples probably did a little bit. Oh, we can take care of this. Uh-oh. And, and they, they couldn't get their Zippo to light. Just wouldn't, no, no, no flame. A little spark, but no flame. What you claim, I claim to love everybody. Well, I watched and you don't. The world says. All of that affects how people see Jesus. The disciples thought they had it figured out. We seem to tend to think we have it figured out. Why doesn't the rest of the world just get it? Why doesn't the rest of the world just come? We, they know where this church is. They could come if they want, really wanted to, we would say. I've known in the past, in a small town, where the church had a big steeple, a person to say, they know where the church is. We're the tallest building in town. Well, whoop-dee-doo. So you got a fancy copper steeple that does not get people to church. People get people to church. The disciples thought they had it figured out. And then something hard came along. Does that sound like the life of a believer? I've got this figured out, Lord. This Christian walk's not too, too bad. I think I can do this. Wham! Freight train just bowls you over. Wait a minute. I've got Jesus. I can do it. Let me throw that name out there. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Everything's fine now. I'm just going to use the name. We sing the songs, there's just something about that name. Yeah, we can throw names all day long, but just because you throw the name doesn't mean you have the power of the name. And these guys thought, we're his disciples. They weren't going forward. They weren't acting in the power of Jesus, but in the power of their tradition. We did it that one time and it worked, so it must work this time. And Jesus says, this is not that time. This is something new and different and harder. And they were part of this unbelieving generation. They had some knowledge. He was teaching them. They were beginning to make progress. We cast out demons. We healed. And then they got to this one and it didn't work. Everything, Jesus says, is possible for the one who believes. See, Jesus has no belief issues. Jesus has full confidence in himself, and it's not arrogance at all, because he can back it up. He knew all of his power was from God. He knew that he and the Father were one. He knew that what he did was what the Father wanted him to do. He knew that every step he took was the right one. So he knew that at this moment, when he cast out this demon, whoop, I gave it away. When that happened, it would be based on his right belief. See, the dad had belief issues. The disciples had belief issues. The crowd had belief issues. The scribes certainly had belief issues. Jesus didn't. Jesus knew that this was not impossible. Who can do what seems impossible? Jesus can. Who can give faith when our faith is gone? Verse 24 Maybe one of the best statements of faith in, in the Bible. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
Lord, I, I've got this little, but I, I, you say I need, I want. See, the dad knew that his faith had waned. He, he knew that in his walk, he had come up to a wall that he couldn't get over. In his life, he had come to a barricade he could not cross with, with his son. And he didn't really ever think that he would. Pat, we're on number five. There we go. See, he thought he had come to the right place. He thought, well, I know where to go. I've heard the stories. There's this guy named Jesus, and he's got these disciples, and they're doing these things. But the disciples had failed. So maybe, can you imagine the despair? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe they lied. Maybe it was fake news. Maybe it was an AI-generated story. Not, not true at all. I must have read it in the Inquirer. Not in a real newspaper, because I'm here... And I came to these disciples, and I heard the disciples do it. They did it all over Galilee. I, I heard it, and they didn't. They couldn't. So maybe I'm the idiot here for, for believing these stories. But there was that, that grain, that, that spark, that, that hint of faith, that that mustard seed. See, it's not that a mustard seed of faith is big. Exact opposite. When Jesus used that parable, uh, that analogy, he, he's not saying that as long as you have a little faith, it's, that's all you need because that little bit of faith is powerful. That's not, that's not what he's saying. It's not the power of the faith. It's the power of the one in whom that faith is placed. He's saying you only need a mustard seed because it's me, y'all. It's Jesus, second person, the Trinity, Son of God, God incarnate, who before too long will defeat death itself. You only need a mustard seed because of who your faith is placed in. Yes, I ended the sentence in a preposition. It was too hard to figure out how not to. That's what matters. So the dad brings his mustard seed. See, Jesus only needs the smallest amount of faith to work. It is not that you don't have enough faith. It's that you're putting your faith in the wrong place. You only need the mustard seed of faith in Jesus. You can put all your faith in somebody else and it's not going to work. You can put all of your faith in a human way of doing things and that's not going to fix the problem but you take the mustard seed you take the spark you take the grain and you put it in Jesus and suddenly the world opens up to what is possible it's not the size of your faith it's the size of your God that matters so dad says Jesus I don't have much but give me what I need Turns out that the not much is, is, is enough. But he says, I, I don't have much. Give me what I need. I only have a little, but you make up the lack. My faith is meager. Make my faith monstrous. My faith is, is five loaves and two fish. So I need you to make it enough to cover 5,000. I don't have it, Jesus. I don't see how this ends well. I don't see a good ending here. Most days I don't even have five loaves and two fish. I got a peppermint at best. Maybe the Halloween size Twix. I got nothing. Mustard seeds seem big when it comes to faith some days. But when our faith is weak... Jesus is the only one that can make it strong. Who can give faith when our faith is gone? Jesus can. 
Number six, who can remove our strongest adversary? Jesus didn't have time to play. This crowd was coming, and he knew this needed to be done now. For whatever reason, he needed it to be done before the crowd came, possibly because of the, the rumors and all, whatever the reason was. He saw the crowd, so he said, let's do this. He commanded the Spirit out. He demanded the Spirit out. And that Spirit took one last shot at the boy. And it was its strongest shot yet. It got one last lick in on the boy. Like it was saying, I'll go, but first this. It thought it might get the last word. Just one more last word. This is the worst yet. So it, it shrieked. What kind of spirit was this? Mute. And yet, when Jesus told it to come out, even mute things scream. Even things with no power, even things that hold you back, suddenly don't have the power they thought they had. And it shrieked as it comes out. And through another convulsion on the boy, the worst one yet. An awful sight, I'm sure. The truth is, when Jesus is pulling something out of you, expect the fiercest hit you have ever taken. When Jesus is pulling you through something, expect the hardest roadblock. When Jesus is working on you in some area, expect the ugliest last word before it goes. But it does not matter how strong the sin, how fierce the hit how hard the roadblock, or how ugly the last word. It doesn't matter what that adversary does to you, says to you, stirs up outside, brings in to the inside. It doesn't matter what is going on. Jesus is stronger than that adversary. Every time. Not some of the time, not part of the time, not occasionally, not as long as it's not a big deal. But every time, it does not matter how hard it is. It does not matter how difficult the situation is. It does not matter which demon it is that's attacking. Jesus is stronger. Who can remove our strongest adversary? Jesus can. Number seven, who can give life where there seems only death? That last hit nearly killed the boy, and, and actually scholars debate whether the boy was actually dead or not. A lot of them say that it, it, it was, he was, and that this was a foreshadowing, an intentional foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. So he, the demon may have actually killed the boy. I mean, that had been the demon's goal all along. Throwing him into the fire when he got a chance. Throwing him in the water when he got a chance. The devil... Your sin, your adversary, your whatever, wants only death for you. It's all they want. It's all the devil wants. Just wants you hurt, wounded, and dead if they can. Well, the truth is, there's no life in your flesh anyway. There's no life in your way. There's no life in your plans. There's no life in yourself. There's only death in your future if your future depends on you. There's no life in us outside of Christ. There's no life of us, thanks Adam and Eve. And Jesus' victory over your adversary may actually feel like death. God, I, I had this plan, and now I don't have this plan. Yes, but I have defeated your adversary. God, I, I thought it would go this way. It didn't. But I have defeated your adversary. When, when Jesus removes that adversary, it may hurt like the devil. It may sting like a whipping. And it may feel like the end if you can't have it your way. But Jesus... Take this, but if I could have this ending, that would be great. And Jesus says, 
Whose party is this? Whose plan is this? Whose timeline? Who's the creator? Who's the created? Who's the boss? Who's the employee? Who is the master? Who is the servant? You let me take care of the adversary. And I know it's not going to look the way you think it ought to. But Jesus knows the better way. He knows, Jesus knows that what feels like death is actually the beginning of life. Romans 6, 6 through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One of the best, bravest prayers you can ever pray as a believer is, Jesus, kill me. Not physically, but kill the me that gets in the way of you. The people saw it. He's dead. And the way that they said it, it, it's implicit in their Good job, Jesus, you killed him. Two thumbs up. You did it. Demon's gone. So is the kid. Was it worth it? But they didn't know what Jesus was doing. Maybe they thought he was too late. Well, it, he got the demon out, but it was just, it was just too late, still killed him. That's what Mary and Martha thought. You're too late. He might have been dead. He might not have been dead. Regardless, that was not the end. Jesus didn't walk away. Uh, tough. And leave. See, because death was the beginning of life. See, Jesus would be dead, but that would not be the end. He would die in just a little while, just a few weeks, few months. But that wouldn't be the end of him. Death is not the end. Death is just the beginning when we die physically, that's just the beginning of our eternity. When we die to Christ, that is just the beginning of our abundant life on earth right now. When we die to sin, that is just the beginning of freedom. It doesn't matter how the end looks. It doesn't matter how dead your hopes and dreams are. Jesus, this was my plan, and you're killing it. And he says, I have something better. It doesn't matter how dead your faith feels. Who can give life where there seems only death? Jesus can. Lastly, who can provide what we need to do what we need? Who can provide what we need to do what we need. When they got back to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why did we fail? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. The disciples knew that this whole thing was all messed up. Like, oh my heavens, we have, we've really stepped in it here, y'all. We, we, we thought we knew and and, and, and we didn't. I mean, we've done this before, and, and we've seen Jesus do it. We know, we know everything about it. We can do it, and, and we know how he does it, and, and we tried it and, it, and it didn't work. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we fix this? Why didn't the problem end when we tried to end the problem? Why wasn't the money there when we needed it? Why didn't the person I witnessed to believe? 
Why were we unable to reach that group with the gospel? Why couldn't I do what I know you called me to do? Why, Jesus? Why did it not work out the way we thought it was going to work out? We, we did the things. We, we, we used the words. We, we thought we believed. What is the problem, Jesus? This can only happen by prayer. This one is hard. This kind. This is difficult. This is more than you've seen. And this can only be taken care of by prayer. Did you pray for your needs? Okay, you, you did. But, but did you? Uh, but did, did somebody else? Did, did you pray for your needs? Did, did you pray? Did you pray? Did you pray? Did you pray for that person you witnessed to? How long? How much? Lord, I'm going to go talk to this person. Give me the words to say amen. Did you bathe that group that needs Jesus in prayer? Have you relied on Jesus in prayer constantly for your calling? Prayer is not an afterthought. It's not a blessing before a meal. It's not a precursor to the real work. Prayer is the work. Yesterday, we had three adult women at prayer time. Three adult women. I wasn't here for men's prayer two weeks ago. We were in Tucson with three of the guys that would have normally been there. So I don't know how many we had. Jim, do you remember about how many we had? Eight. Eight men at our monthly prayer time. A few weeks ago, we had a Sunday night prayer time for our back-to-church Sunday, where we had hoped to have 150 people in here. We said we are going to come and pray in the sanctuary for that Sunday. We had 14, 14 people praying. Five of those were the pastor's family. Four of those were the pastor's family. Four or five of those were the youth and children's minister's family. That means we had five people that weren't paid to be here. This kind only comes out by prayer. I've heard people say we need prayer meeting again. Y'all, we have prayer meeting twice a month. And special times as well. This kind only comes out by prayer. Do you want to see our church turned around? This kind only comes out by prayer. Do you want to see us reach our community for Jesus? This kind only comes out by prayer. Church, until we are a praying church, we will never be a salvation, a saving church. Church, we will never be an evangelizing church. We will never be a ministering church. We will never be a growing church until we are a praying church. And folks, it is 100% my fault that we are not a praying church like we should be. That is on me. It's the coach's job, right? That's what, the, that's what Hugh Free said last night at the end of the Auburn LSU game. That's on the coaches. We didn't coach the kids. Folks, it is my fault that we are not a praying church. But that is going to change. I stand today before you to promise you, and you are all my witnesses, that is going to change. I can't make you pray. I can't make you come up here. But I'm going to provide the opportunities. And if we are not a praying church, it will be because you choose not to be a praying church, but not because you weren't led to be a praying church. Y'all, prayer is the work. Going to Tucson was work, but that wasn't the work. Praying was the work. Praying before we got there was the work. Praying over those communities was the work. Prayer was the work. Oswald Chambers said, in my utmost for his highest, prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greatest work, the greater work. 
We think of prayer as a common sense exercise of our higher powers in order to prepare us for God's work. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, prayer is the working of the miracle of redemption in me, which produces the miracle of redemption in others by the power of God. The way fruit remains is by prayer. But remember, it is prayer based on the agony of redemption, not on my agony. Only a child gets prayer answered. A wise man does not. Prayer is the battle. It is a matter of indifference where you are. Whichever way God engineers circumstances, the duty is to pray. Never allow the thought, I am of no use where I am. Because you certainly can be of no use where you are not. Wherever God has dumped you down in circumstances, pray to him all the time. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that I will do, scripture says. We won't pray unless we get thrills. That is the intensest form of spiritual selfishness. We have to labor along the line of God's direction, and he says pray. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. There is nothing thrilling about a laboring man's work, but it is the laboring man who makes the conceptions of the genius possible. It is the laboring saint who makes the conceptions of his master possible. You labor at prayer, and results happen all the time from his standpoint. What an astonishment it will be to find when the veil is lifted, the souls that have been reaped by you simply because you had been in the habit of taking your orders from Jesus Christ. Prayer is what we lack. Prayer is what we need. Prayer is what will, what, is what will cause this kind to come out who can provide what we need to do what we need jesus can paul wrote in romans 7 24 what a wretched man i am who will rescue me from this body of death thanks be to god jesus can that's not what he wrote but he that's what he meant Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What can save you from your sin and give you eternal life, give you life where there seems to be only death? Who can do that? Jesus can. Our, there we go. Jesus can. Jesus can. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can have salvation. We can have an eternity with him. We can have abundant life now and eternal life forever. Jesus can. But you have to take the next step. You have to take up your cross, leave your life, and follow him. Trust in him for salvation. You, you have to be baptized, not for your salvation. Baptism is just a next step. It's a step of obedience. Next slide, please, Pat. Submitting to God, conforming your life to him. Joining this church, maybe, but a local body somewhere. You take your next steps. And you find, as you walk with him, as you put your faith in him, what can save me from my sin? Jesus can. What can lead me in my growth in him? Jesus can. What can make me whole again? Jesus can. What can guarantee my eternity with him? Jesus can. Share with us what your decision is this morning. Pray with me. Lord, we know Jesus can. But I'm afraid I'm just like the disciples. 
I think I've got it figured out, so all right, Jesus, I can take it from here. I know Jesus can, but I think Michael can. So I'm going to do it like Frank Sinatra said, my way. And I fail. And we as a church think we've got it figured out. We've been around 120-something years, 120-ish years. We've got, we know how to do this. Thank you, Jesus. We can take it from here. We can, but we can't. Because when it comes down to the difficult moments, we are an unbelieving generation. If we just had faith, if we just believed, Lord, we believe. I know we believe. I believe. But help our unbelief. Help my unbelief. We give it to you. Because Jesus can. And when we try to trust in our own ways, Lord, help our unbelief, Jesus can. And Lord, when we hit the brick wall, when we hit the roadblocks, when we come to the point where we know we can't anymore, and we think we're doing the right things, let us remember that this one only comes out by prayer. And it turns out there are a lot more that only come out by prayer than don't. You have called your house a house of prayer. And we have turned it into a house of selfishness and self-reliance. Lord, forgive us that we have forgotten this one only comes out by prayer. And every adversary Every sin, every thorn in the flesh, every messenger of Satan will only come out by prayer. And then after that, we learn sometimes you leave the thorns to keep us humble because we'll get real cocky about how good we were at praying and you won't even let that happen. But Lord, you will get us to the end that you've called us to. You will perfect the plan that you've set before us. We will have to die. Lord Jesus, kill First Baptist Church of Sulphur. And raise us again to life. If that's what it takes to be a church that grows disciples in order to make disciples. We submit to your will, Jesus, only Jesus. Amen. Now's the time to pray. A few weeks ago, we asked you to come forward to pray for our mission team. I think two people did. I'm asking you to pray. This next time, we're going to sing, we're going to worship. And your singing may be praying. But when, you, I'm just going to be real honest here, when your eyes are open, you're staring at the screen, your mouth's not moving, and you look like you'd rather be at lunch by now, it doesn't look like you're praying, it doesn't sound like you're singing, I want the next five minutes to be worship and prayer. And that might mean coming forward. And I know the floor is hard, so maybe you don't want to kneel, but you can stand. 
It's figurative when Paul writes in Romans to present your bodies a living sacrifice, to lay yourself on the altar. That's a figurative statement. We have no altars. But there is something about the attitude of the heart that is changed when we physically present ourselves on God's altar. If you're going to come forward here in the next few minutes just to make me happy, please don't. But if the Holy Spirit moves you to come forward to pray, don't not. Let's stand and worship.